This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, your host tonight, and I am joined in studio by my dear colleague and co-host, Mike Yuseem. I am here, Ann. Great to be with you tonight. So great to have you here tonight, Mike. And our colleague, Jeff Klein, is out in China. <laughs> and as I said to you, Mike, before the show, I'm hearing from him more frequently when he yeah. is in China than when he's stateside. <laughs> well, and, and just to comment, it's a rather weak excuse that he's in China, that he can't be live on our program tonight. I know, yeah. really. <laughs> You'd think he could call yeah, it. But of course, Mike, we have to remember that it's already tomorrow in China. It is. Uh, <laughs> so, well, is that a way of saying China is always ahead of he's us? He's ahead. <laughs> yes, he's ahead. But Mike, we have, uh, I think, a really wonderful show lined up yeah. tonight. Uh, and in fact, have someone that you know from the Wharton School. He is a candidate in our Wharton Executive MBA program. Indeed. And he is also uh, a former football player. He started in 127 games for the Texans, the Chiefs, the Cardinals, and the Bengals. And he's just recently retired. And now he is president of the NFL. Players Association, and I am speaking about Eric Winston. Eric, it would be such a pleasure to have you join us tonight. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> really happy to have you, uh, Eric. I would like to talk a little bit about um, football on and off the field, but I might just start with a just a light warm up question. So, when you were ten. Did you imagine that you would be the president of the NFL Players Association? No, I, I didn't think about that. I, I could be honest with you. I don't know if I thought about that 10 years ago, even when I was even in the NFL, that I'd be in the position I am. Um, growing up in West Texans, West Texas, uh, unions in a lot of way are, are very, are very foreign. You know, there's not a lot of uh, unions per se. And in uh, in Texas to begin with, and then obviously out in West Texas, there's there's none. So, growing up and and obviously hoping to play sports and and uh, playing it at a at a lot of different levels and a lot of different games, uh, but uh, but this but this sort of uh, leadership position, I, I never really thought was uh, was something that I'd ever be in, be involved in. Mm. So, did you dream of being a football player? Yeah, uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I mean, I, I I dreamed of being an athlete, right? I mean, you grew up, and I, I was one of those kids that played everything. And when it was football season, you played football. When it was basketball season, played basketball and baseball and so on. And, um, and so I, you know, I, I've always loved athletics. I've always loved competition, and uh, you know, I always played something, and uh, that always it was always part of the a part of my deal growing up. And my brothers and we chased each other around and. So it was uh, it was always a competitive uh, competitive family, whether it was in the classroom or um, on the field, and we all challenged each other to be better. and And uh, luckily, luckily enough, uh, you know, things things worked out for me. Very good. And if I've uh, read read a little bit about your biography, your father was a school vice principal. Is that right? And your mother a nurse? Yeah. Yep. 
And so, so was education then uh, sort of a given that you would go on to college? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that was both of them college graduates, obviously. And um, so that was always the plan, right? That was always to go to college. But the, the real dream, I think, was, was to get somebody to pay for that college. Um, <laughs> okay. and, and that was kind of through either grades or athletics, right? And this idea of this uh, scholarship and that was, uh, again, you know, a lot of people, I think, take those things for granted uh, somewhat on the East Coast. And when you're growing up in a, in a rural place in West Texas, you know, scholarship is, is pretty rare. You know, there's yeah. people that did it. There's obviously people that had it, but it wasn't, wasn't something that you could look at a lot of guys that were coming out of the school in front of you or when you were a kid say, oh, man, that guy, you know, is going to whatever college on a scholarship. That was a, that was a rare event. It happened, but it was a, it was a rare event. And and so it wasn't it wasn't like I had a lot of idols to, to look up to, but there were a few and I looked up to them. But that was that was always the dream. And that was something that, uh, you know, my father and mother both instilled in me is to, to get as, as good a grade as possible and um, to play and just really do everything you do as well as possible. And that was something that uh, I've, I've, I think that's really stuck with me and, and everything that I've done. All right. I have just maybe another question, maybe two, and then I'm going to let Mike get a word in edgewise here. So you played and then at the University of Miami, where you also studied international finance. How did you choose the University of Miami? Was it simply that that was the best uh, scholarship opportunity for you, or were there other factors? Yeah, luckily, coming out of, of, of high school, I'd you know, position myself where I, I had a choice and I had a lot of choices and uh, Miami definitely wasn't the place that I thought of I was going to go even probably my junior year I, I grew up a big Notre Dame fan and a big Texas A&M fan and uh, a lot of my family actually my older brother at the time was at Texas A&M so I just assumed I was going to go to one of those two places uh, fortunately when I grew up and, and as I was in, uh, in high school, our football team was really, really good. Uh, we won <laughs> three state championships in four years wow. in Midland, um, part of that, you know, that all the lore of, of West Texas high school football. And, um, and so I, I wanted that same sort of success. I wanted at least a chance at that. Right. And, and so when I was coming out, those two schools were going through some, through some changes in, in their leadership at head coach and, I didn't want to go somewhere and, and not have a chance to, to win big and to compete in the, in the biggest games and to play in the biggest games. And, um, and so it, it became clear to me, and, and there were some other choices, but Miami provided that. And they mm -hmm. also provided this sort of competition, right, that it wasn't, wasn't about where you were coming from or how many stars as a recruit you had. It was about mm -hmm. how good you were going to be. And that was something that really drew me to Miami was this idea that it's a, it's a very competitive place. And that's the, the, you know, if you look back in college football and, and how good they've been for a long time, but that's, that's the one thing is you, you go there and, and you have to compete to just get on the field. And so that was something that actually drew me to that, to Miami was, was that. And, and of course they have a great business school and mm -hmm. it was uh, the, I, I was more taken back by that, just their overall academic structure, uh, their private school in, in Miami and a, a very nice part of Miami. And, it just it just ended up making sense where I was coming out, what I was thinking, and I think just timing wise, um, it ended up being the right play. And it's it's interesting that timing. I think and and luck people call luck or timing, 
it, it plays a lot into your decision making. It plays into a lot of life, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, if I was coming out right this second, I, I don't, and I was in the same kid in the same place. I don't know if Miami would be there, be that school, but I'm, I'm thankful at that time that it was because, you know, for a kid that grew up all 18 years in West Texas to go to Miami yeah. was such a civics lesson every day. Absolutely. Uh, there's so many, uh, there's, there's so many cultures down there and, and, and getting to see that and getting to see the world in a lot of ways that, that the world came to Miami and getting to meet people uh, for me just broadened my horizon so much that I wanted to, to keep it going. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so whether it was football or whether it was life after college, if it wasn't going to be athletics, I knew I wanted to go do something, um, you know, where I, where I met people from around the world because Miami was such a was such a neat and interesting place. All right, Eric, I'm going to hand to Mike, but last, so last question for me. Uh, your position in high school, and was it the same in college? And then as you um, moved into the NFL, did you shift positions? Yeah, so I was a tight end coming out of uh, out of high school, and I was a tight end um, coming uh, go, actually my first year in at Miami, and uh, there was a, a, a actually a, a old player from Miami who was then an NFL scout and told me he said, "Listen, you know, you could you can go play in the NFL and be a tight end, but you'll be a second or third tight end, or you know, you can move the tackle and and, and be really good." <laughs> you know, and, and the, the choice is yours. And, and no one, you know, and I had my heart set on being a tight end. I, that's why I went to Miami. You know, Jeremy Shockey and Bubba Franks and Mondrell Fulcher and all these guys that had played tight end at Miami and, and a lot since that, that I've been there. That was a big reason going there. The coach was a was a really good tight end coach. He was also the offensive coordinator. And 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 I I, I think I might have known that subconsciously that maybe I won't be this guy forever. But I didn't want to believe it. Yeah. And then having somebody that I respected say that um, changed my outlook on everything. And I think it just goes to show you what you think is going to happen or what mm-hmm. you think is best for you sometimes isn't. And and being able to pivot from there and, and go in and being an offensive tackle ended up being the, the best move I, I made and something that, you know, two years before that I, I wouldn't want to have listened to. So it was, uh, it, it was a, a time of change all the way around. Oh, that's great. Mike, please join us. <laughs> well, first of all, Eric, great to have you on the program. And yeah, just to make it uh, a little bit personal here at the outset, and uh, Eric and I were in a course together just a few months back on leadership and teamwork <laughs> as part of the executive MBA program here at the school. And uh, just to offer a sentence about the program, then to ask you a question about it, Eric, executive MBA in our nomenclature means a full MBA degree, but the classes come, in our case, on Fridays and Saturdays every other weekend over two years. Uh, most people like Eric are working full-time when they're in the program. They've often got families on top of that. And the pace of the executive MBA is almost the same as that of a regular MBA. Right, so right. these are the Very weekend warriors, as we call them. <laughs> Eric, a quick question for you, kind of working on your academic career a little bit backwards now. What drew you into um, an MBA program, not necessarily ours, but just more generally. Well, why did you decide to indeed spend two years uh, weekends galore yeah. on an executive MBA? Well, the, the MBA just as a, you know, well, we're not delineating between the full-time or the, the executive version, as you um, pointed out, was something that both of my brothers actually have done. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they found a lot of value from it. Um, not necessarily my older brother actually doesn't isn't in a field necessarily that uses it, but 
and my little brothers in, in private equity obviously can sort of a, a stamp of approval if you will of of, um, of something you have to have in that field but I, I i've always been drawn to business I, I always end up meeting people and asking them you know how do you make that work or how does that work how does that company function how does it, you know what is the difference that it makes and so it was always something that i think drew to me and i i knew coming out of a, a long career in the nfl that i wanted to do more and that uh i, I needed something coming out that was twofold a it was going to be uh, that was going to work on my hard skills, right? Because you know, being in the being there that long, obviously some of that deteriorates, and you don't have that ramp up period that a lot of people do in their twenties. You know, I always use my little brother as a, as a example because it's so stark. You know, in his twenties, he was doing the investment banking and the private equity thing, and you know, he was earning his chops, and so was I. But I was doing it in a much different <laughs> field, um, and, and and quite frankly, a field that built a lot of. I think skills that I, I think are very important, but not necessarily the hard skills. So that for this course was, I think, is great for me to sharpen those hard skills. But more so for me, I felt like I needed a, a signal of sorts, um, something that told people like, hey, this guy can do more than just smash his head into other people. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, the NFLPA is something that I'm, I'm very proud of. Um, I'm elected from you know, the, the body of the NFL players are around the league. But at the same time, I think I, I needed something to tell the rest of the world as I transitioned out of the NFL that if, if you hire me or if I'm going to come and we're going to do something together, however that's going to end up working, that, you know, it's not just the leadership. It's not just the things that I learned in the NFL world. I, I have other skills too. And so I, I wanted to make that signal as loud as possible. So for me coming out of out of the NFL, it was either it was either MBA business school or it was law school, no. and um, I just I was I was drawn much more to to business school. Mm-hmm. Eric, before we leave that particular focus, I'm imagining that a certain number of listeners have thought in their mid twenties or even in their thirties of making a significant career change. Sometimes we've all run into people who made a total career change. And it's always seemed to me that professional athletes, uh, professional dancers, if you're uh, 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 on stage in modern dance, uh, the the day will come, often when you're not all that far along chronologically, that you're going to have to move on. And certainly professional football, professional baseball, professional basketball, much the same. So looking back on your decision to retire from uh, wearing a uniform and then uh, you're still involved, obviously. We'll come back to this in the Players Association in a major way. But looking ahead, what advice would you have for listeners who are thinking a little bit like you, somewhere in their 20s or 30s, about a very significant career change? You know, I, Mike, I haven't met a lot of people, that, and I've been so lucky that I've, that I've been able to meet a lot of successful people, and, and uh, whether it was in Houston when I was playing there and in the energy industry or – um, just throughout, you know, through sports figures and just a lot of people, entertainers even. You know, it's, it's funny how all the athletes end up meshing and, and melding through a lot of these uh, these different things. Mm-hmm. But I, I haven't met a lot of people that weren't very passionate about what they were doing and, and super successful. You know, mm-hmm. it, that's just – that's the one thing that ties everything together, whether mm-hmm. it's Peyton Manning and Drew Brees or – um, uh, Rich Kinder at, at Kinder Morgan in Houston, yep. or uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> Tillman Fertitta at Landry's Restaurant. I mean, these guys 
you can tell they, they live it. They breathe it. They, they're so passionate about what they're doing. Um, and they, they believe in what they're doing that I, I don't, I don't get how anybody would go and do something really for their whole lives. And I think it's unfortunate, you know, I, when I see people do that, that they don't really love what they're doing. They don't really believe in it. And that's what I would tell people more than anything, that if hmm. you're doing something, whether you're in your late twenties or even your late thirties, and this, this class that I'm in is, is their median age is right around my age is 34. And there's plenty of people that have done very well. Obviously, they're here, they're at Wharton, but they've done very well. But they're looking to go do something else. Like they're they're not happy with where they are, or they're not um, they're not in that 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 lane that they want to be in for the long haul. And so they want to they want to just switch over. Um, but I also think there's a paralyzing uh, fear factor that comes along with it that that you, you get stuck in this and it's, and it's easy and it, you, can see, you can see all the way down the road. And, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard to walk on a, on a surface where you can't see the next step in front of you. But if you know you don't want to be on that surface that you can see all the way down, there's not a lot of other options. And for me, I didn't want, I didn't want to get done playing football and have a great career and do the things I've done at the PA and then nothing. Mm-hmm. I just felt like I had some skills and I don't, and I'll be honest with you. Like, I don't know what those are yet. I don't know <laughs> where I'm going to end up fitting in. Yep. Um, but I know that I, I know what I feel like I'm good at and I know what I feel like I can bring to something. And, uh, and I, when I find exactly that next thing that I'm as passionate about as I was football, I'm looking forward to jumping into that. And, and whether that's in six months or three years, uh, you know, I, I'm okay with that. And, and the other thing too is, is I don't. I'm not going to. I think people wait till the very perfect moment. I, but I don't think you know what the perfect timing mm, is unless yeah. you've done the other stuff too. <laughs> and I, I think it's okay to go get into something and then get out of it and be like, oh, that wasn't for me, because that's the best way you learn of. I think really what you want to do. Eric, I'm going to jump in and just let everyone know that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm with Mike Useem, and together we have the real honor and pleasure of speaking with Eric Winston. Mike, you have a follow-up. Yeah, Eric, uh, uh, thank you on that. That was really interesting. And now, drawing on your experience working for four teams in the NFL You've played with a lot of coaches. You've had uh, head coaches and offensive coaches working with you in detail over quite, quite a number of seasons. Thinking back on the best, maybe just picking one or even two of the coaches, walk through how they work with you in a way that had a lasting impact on you. So the question really is about how coaches have affected you directly and how you operate and then my related question is: Is how did they, how did they get to you? What was it in their <laughs> method that led you to change your your maybe your position on the field or whatever it was? So anyway, there it is, right. Eric. Looking back on yeah, some a, great coaches, that's a great question. Uh, if you know, especially in the NFL is is an interesting place when you talk about affecting change in people's lives. You have guys that are twenty one, twenty two years old that are still very impressionable, and then you have you know, guys that fast forward 12 years and all of a sudden you have three kids and you're 12 years yeah. in and you're, you're 33 or 34 and you're like, you know, I don't, I don't need the same thing as when you were 22. And, and obviously everyone knows how cutthroat of a, of a league it is. And so the relationship part actually is very tough, 
especially for coaches. It's tough because you know you don't want to get too close to a player that you might have to let go, or you don't want to. It's it, it, and some players are saying, "I don't need that." You know, I've I've got plenty. I've I'm, I've got that already. But there are guys that did, and I definitely did. I I had a coach in Houston, our head coach Gary Kubiak, who I think a lot of, and, and you know, the one thing that I think he did to just teach us you know he talked a lot about being a pro a pro and what that meant to be a professional and we had a young team so i think it was easier for him to to speak about these broad strokes because you know a vast majority of the team was a, a young player it was under four years probably of service so we're talking about a lot of a lot of guys that were 22 to 26 and what it meant to to, to be a professional and be there and, and the little things that you had to do i i, I think sometimes leaders or, or, or coaches and I'll use coach, but you can probably sum that in, sub the word coaching for boss or, or whatever. And, and a lot of different structures is the, the bosses sometimes get lost to me in the, in the minutia, they mm-hmm. get lost in the details and they get lost in trying to make the train run on time instead of telling the guys why the train should run on time and what the benefit it is, is if, if the train does run on time. <laughs> And I thought, I thought, Gary, not only did he teach the details, that you, because you got to show that stuff, but we talked a lot about life, and we talked a lot about, again, going back to what it means to be a pro. And, and when, you, when you're talking about these big arcing um, examples and thoughts, that it's easier to teach and it's easier to describe what that means when you're, when you're putting that stuff out there and, and that you actually do care about the person. Mm-hmm. And that was something that that he that came across so much with him is that is that he, you could feel because he was trying to teach you these life lessons that there was this connection that he was trying to make with the guys and that maybe not every guy got it but I definitely did mm-hmm. and I definitely appreciated it and I was able I think to to mature and take that next step that uh, quite frankly a lot of guys fail to do and 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 can't get over that proverbial hump. And, and, and last a long time in the NFL, but I, but I think a lot of it wasn't about uh, what your technique was on this play or how you approach this. It was really these broad strokes about, I know that I need to be a professional, and I might not know exactly what that is yet, but I know that I need to figure that out, and I know that's going to be a process. And, and it was something that we talked about, not all the time, but but we talked about frequently over the course of a season. And I think that helped just frame the what needed to be done and then the little stuff took care of itself because i was willing to go put that sort of uh investment in because i knew that's what it took to be a professional and it wasn't something that had to necessarily be taught so that's how i i think of when you ask that question of someone that made that difference i I look at it from that lens of, of of how he tried to i think get guys and inspire them and get to them was having these broader conversations about family and about being a father and being a professional to a lot of impressionable guys that, again, it made a big difference on me. That's great. Eric, maybe just one follow-up. Mike will recall that we've had Greg Easterbrook on the show a number of times, and and he writes about social, cultural, political affairs, but as a sideline also writes uh, a column that he called the Tuesday Morning Quarterback. And he made uh, an interesting comment for me, and I wonder if you agree. He thought that the coach's impact on the player uh, was 
uh, decreased. <laughs> in other words, the greatest impact in high school and then less impact in college and the least impact in the pros. Would you, you know, generally speaking, would you agree with that trajectory? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that if you're talking about the broad range of picture, I mean, you're going to affect more change in a kid that's, you know, 15 to 18, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you're going to be able to make a lot more of those life lessons. I, again, if I was going to pick another coach, I would pick my high school coach because that was, yeah. that was the, the guy that, again, took me from being sort of a kid into – uh, what it took to, to get to that next level. And, again, he talked a lot of, uh, about those same themes, and it wasn't about necessarily your hand placement on a block, but a lot of about what it was to, to grow up and be an adult and, and to take on that responsibility. So I, I agree with that, but mm-hmm. at the same time, there's 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 not a – how do I phrase this? There's not just a time to make a difference in somebody's life. That's right? true. And oh, so yeah. it, it's – there's different stages in everybody's life. And just because you got them to one point, it's hard to keep that going forever. Right. And Mm -hmm. so there's different stages. I think that, that everyone talks about, I, I remember, um, Mike talking in class about how, you know, there were kind of that good to great and, and that there were good managers and that something got them over the hump. That obviously didn't happen in high school. That happened well into their adulthood. But I think, we can all make differences, and I think coaches do make differences in people's lives at different stages. But I, I, I do tend to agree with that overall urgent comment just because there's so many more of them to, uh, to make an impression, and it's the time to do it. Whereas in the NFL, some guys, you know, I, like I said, are already well into adulthood right. and, and have a family and everything else like that. So, Eric, in the first part of the hour, you shared with us that. Uh, you know, you didn't imagine that you would be president of the Players Association when you were 10. And in fact, not even 10 years ago when you were playing, did you imagine that you would be president? So how did that come about? How did you become president? Yeah, you know, I, I, I so when I was drafted to Houston, I um, there was a guy there who was at the time uh, a longtime player named uh, Mark Bruner, uh, and he was a vice president of the union, meaning he was on the executive committee and a leader of the union. And uh, he was a, a bit of a mentor to me, and, and not necessarily because of the union thing, just because I, I found him to be a guy who obviously knew what he was doing. He'd be, I think he ended up playing for 14 years. Uh, he was a guy that just always seemed to be on the ball and exactly know what's going on and just that everything about him was squared away, and, and and he was nice enough to extend a hand and to say, hey, listen, if you you want some help or you want this, you know, show up at this time, and you know, I'll help you. And so, you know, one of the few good things I probably did my rookie year was show up on time and, and meet <laughs> him there, and and he was willing to show me the ropes. And you know, as we got going, and we would work out together some and talk some, and you know, I just I was asking a lot of questions, and, and like I said before, that's sort of my thing I'm, I'm kind of inquisitive i want to know what's going on and why things are working the way they are and 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 how how possibly to improve and and things of that nature and so i was asking him a lot of questions and he said hey listen you should come to our annual meeting you, you'd be perfect there you know you want to help you want to figure things out you, we need more guys like you and so he he invited me and and and, and uh, made sure that i attended a you know, an annual meeting probably 11 years ago now, and, and, and here I am. And so that, that, that worked into a, a leadership role at the team level. So I was elected as a representative at the team. And, um, 
And then uh, from there, I, I spent, uh, I was a representative on two different teams, the Texans and then the Chiefs. And, um, and then, uh, what's this, five years ago now, almost to the day, uh, I was uh, the players, the representatives of all 32 teams voted me as, as president. So that's how our structure works. Every Think of it as a top-down. You have a president, you have 10 vice presidents, and then every team has one voting rep that those, guys, that those voting reps were elected at the team level. And, um, and so it's, it's been an honor to, to, uh, to, to represent these guys and to uh, do what needs to be done to protect them and help them. So, Eric, a naive question for me. Are you a member of the union simply by virtue of being a player? Yes. So everybody, as soon as you're drafted, as soon as you're drafted, you become part of the union. Okay. And um, and, and it's a union as you would think of the steelworkers and the Teamsters. Mm -hmm. You know, we bargain on behalf of our members for wages, hours, working conditions, Mm -hmm. and health and safety. Um, So, you know, if you think about the coal miners, we're, we're doing something similar. Yeah, obviously it's a much more well-known and, and the money's bigger but at the same time it's it's really the same principles when yeah. you start thinking about it and that's how we try to lead is not necessarily um on multiples but on on principles and and what these are our principles these are our working condition principles and these are our health and safety principles and this is what we believe in yeah. and i think when you are able to articulate your values and what you believe in um it's it's much easier to get your point across and so that's that's something that, uh, that that what we try to do. Now, obviously, we have some other parts that probably is, is very non-traditional union. We have a, a for-profit arm that uh, that licenses our likeness, so our, our face, our jersey number, our IP, if you will. They go out okay. and license that in the marketplace. So if you're thinking about trading cards and you're thinking about EA with the you know, electronic arts, the, the Madden football game, they have to buy a, a master license from us because they use six or more players in their promotional activities. Mm-hmm. And so that money helps fund the union and, and helps fund the, you know, a possible work stoppage if it comes to that. And, and, and so that's, that's, that's some of the non-traditional union stuff we do. We also have a uh, transitional service that we've built out since 2011 called the trust. And, and so we're, we're always trying to innovate. We're always trying to help. But mm-hmm. my original, my original foray into, into this was basically because I was asking a lot of questions that I think, I think Mark was probably tired of answering. <laughs> so he said, so he said, you should come to a meeting and ask those questions with somebody else. And now Eric, it's unusual, isn't it? For someone to be head of the players association who is retired. Is that true? Uh, yes, in, in a way. So I, I have to term off. So how our, ours work is, is I run on two-year terms. And so I was elected last March. Uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to play. Uh, shortly after that, I, I decided not to play and, and obviously enroll into Wharton. Um, and so my two-year term held. Now, I can't run again. So right, I'm, I'm right. what they call termed out. So I'm, I'm termed out, and, and so next year, uh, when that two-year term is up, somebody else will, will take the uh, take the baton and, and run with it, and and so I'm I'm in the process of uh, again just trying to leave it a little bit better than I found it, and um, that's so I think what's been done for me and what's always really been my mission going forward was to was to accomplish that in, in different ways and and how I I felt best to do it, but uh, yeah, so that's. It is. It's a little odd. It's happened before uh, because, guy, you know, you never know when when the end's coming. Right. And 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 so that's 
that's how we end up doing it. All right, I'm going to hand to Mike, but before I do, I know uh, I'm confident that our listeners know about the NFL Players Association, but I wonder if they've, they know about the, you know, sort of the mission or the banner. And I, I was impressed by that, so I'm just going to read it. We, the National Football League Players Association, pay homage to our predecessors for their courage, sacrifice, and vision, pledge to preserve and enhance the democratic involvement of our members, Confirm our willingness to do whatever is necessary for the better, betterment of our members. And we pledge to preserve our gains and achieve those goals not yet attained. Hmm. All right, Mike, with that background. All right, how about that, Eric? So, Eric, um, I'm really intrigued by the first sentence of an article that was written about you back in November, published in the New York Times, a lengthy <laughs> article. And it says this. I'm going to quote directly. As president of the NFL Players Association, Eric Winston is up against billionaire owners, um, uh, the commander-in-chief, and an existential threat to football. And then it describes you in the title as a David kind of facing <laughs> a couple Goliaths. So just to ask you now about your, again, leadership in action here. Right. Your leadership on the player side, then I'll follow up with a uh, question about how you work with the owners. But let's take the players, 2,000 players, and mention this. And just talk through, if you would, how you pull their thinking together and represent them at the bargaining table. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of herding cats. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, so obviously, like I said, we have our annual meeting coming up, and I actually leave tomorrow for that. And that's a big part, right? We, when, when you were talking about the preamble, that democratic process, we, we emphasize that to the guys. We say, hey, listen, you have a voting rep uh, on your team that is, that is a part, uh, you know, is part of leadership. And, and if you have an issue or you have a problem, you have something that's going on, talk to him so he can talk to us. And, and, but we also, when, when we're bargaining or we're doing something, we're getting feedback from those members through those reps and, mm -hmm. and into the team level. And so when you think about bargaining and you think about what we're up against, it's about getting buy-in from everybody, right? I mean, for me to yeah. walk in the room and say, this is what we want is, is silly from a, from a leadership standpoint. I've got to go in and I've got to build consensus throughout my membership. And I, I lean on a lot of my leaders and I lean on a lot of the guys that have been elected in these other leadership positions to help me do that. But we've got to go into the locker room and we've got to build consensus of, okay, what guys, what do you want? What are you thinking? And what is the best thing for everybody? And that sometimes mm -hmm. is tough because you have 2,000 members and each guy is at a different phase of his career. And then each guy has a, is at a different um, you know, spot on the roster, let's say, right? And sometimes everything that you might think is best for everyone, and it could be. It could be there's 53 guys in every roster. It could be the most beneficial thing for 48. But there's five guys that that's not going to help. So you have to you have to get creative and you have to be able to think outside the box. You have to be able to create some workarounds where, OK, we're going to do something that's really going to help these 48 guys. But for these other five guys that it might not help, let's give them this option, too. And yeah. that's where, again, I just go back to this idea. And I didn't quite understand it. And I, I really credit our general counsel, who's been at the PA for over 30 years now about teaching me about what it means to build consensus, right? Mm -hmm. when, I, when I was elected, I said, oh, man, I was elected, and these are all my ideas, and let's go do them. <laughs> yeah. so, okay. Whoa, Take hold charge. Down. Hold, hold down here. Yeah. You, you know, if you want, this, you want this change to last, 
and you want these things to, to you need to get buy-in. And, and he sat me down and talked about what it meant to really build consensus and what it meant to think through issues and to think through these ideas. And um, I appreciate it because I, I see it now that the things that people try to, to come there and, and shove through seldom do. But the, the ideas that are debated, and sometimes that means changing your original idea. And you've got to be okay with that. You, you've got to come with a great idea, but at the same time, you've got to be okay with the fact that it might not be perfect, that other guys might be able to make it more perfect. And, and, and even if you don't think that's a more perfect change, it's a more perfect change for the majority. And you have to believe in that power and that power of everyone. And so that's something that I've really been able to see in action over these last five years of this, this wisdom of the crowd, so to speak, that when we, when we all get together, we can all do better things um, more of the time. And, and so that's been something that's just been very revelatory to me through this process. So, Eric, that's uh, extremely interesting on the first half of the equation. And then the second half are the 32, to quote the New York Times here, billionaire owners. They're across the table, of course, and it's uh, bargaining is a big piece of what you do. But uh, going back to Anne's rendering of your uh, your, your mission statement, well, the owners uh, have something that's probably got a comparable phrasing, too. We want great games that fans love, and we want to help players do the best possible job. All that said, talk through now how once you've got um, your 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 basic ideas in mind that you've picked up from uh, listening to your players, of course, all 2,000, and now you're looking at uh, 32 owners across the table. How do you work with and lead them? Well, that's uh, that's the tough part, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the tough part is building consensus, but then the really tough part is, okay, how do you push it through? And I, I think a lot of this, what I've I've learned is, is relationships, and you have to build the relationships. I think in negotiation, you have to build a certain amount of trust, and that's tough because at times, and when you're in management and labor, there's just things that we're going to fundamentally disagree on. And that we're going to disagree on it because it really comes from a outlook that you have on the industry, right? You come from two different sides of it and you view it differently. And so I think there has to be a little bit of trust there and you have to be able to build that through some of those soft skills and just through time together that even though you might disagree with them, they know that you want the best and you know that they want the best because it's hard to find good ground that, like you said, the game can thrive and the players can thrive and the business can thrive. Because I do believe that if the business thrives, that the players thrive, the business will thrive and vice versa, right? And so it's important to be able to, okay, how do we give something here? Because long term, that's going to be good. Because you have to trust the fact that that's what it's going to be if the guy across your table is saying it's going to be. Because sometimes some of these things, you know, these long contracts are and sometimes are a leap of faith. And you have to be able to believe. And then the rest of it comes from, you know, leverage and and uh, some of those other things that you have to have going into anything. Right. If you want someone to give you something, you have to have you have to give them a reason to give it to you. And sometimes that reason can't be a good point. (laughs) It's got to be it's got to be will and it's got to be willpower. You know, you got to be willing to do things. And so um, but that's but that's part of, I think, the bargain. Right. We know that from them. And that's why the 32 billionaires part is. Is, is tough to overcome because obviously there's some connotation 
with that statement that means towards the end of what they're able to do. And now we have to muster up our uh, our resolve and our will uh, so that they know what we're able to do so that we can then figure the deal out. And um, but, but going back to the nuts and bolts of it, I do think a lot of it just comes down to whether you're trying to buy a, buy a motorcycle out of at the thrift <laughs> store or you're, mm-hmm. you're trying to get a massive deal done. There is some, there's, it's, we're humans. It, mm-hmm. it comes down to personalities and it comes down to uh, relationships and it comes down to that stuff. And it's not everything that's not necessarily going to get it always done. But it gives you a, it gives you a chance, and so I've I've tried to build up some of those relationships. I've tried to be that guy that I'd want to see on the other side of the table, in the sense of if I'm going to tell you something, that's the way it's going to be, and you might not like it, but at least you'll trust me when I say it that you'll understand where I'm coming from. Eric, let me jump in and let everyone know that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall with Mike Useem, and we're speaking with Eric Winston. Eric, a follow-up to Mike's good question. Can you give an example? Uh, We'll do the good news first. Can you give an example of an instance in which you were uh, able to negotiate a positive outcome that you thought was in the benefit of the players? Yeah, so one of my passions has been financial literacy for guys. And, you know, when I first came into the league, these uh, they they (laughs) – they get you in a room, and, and one time your whole career, you're right right before your rookie year, and they show you yield curves, and they tell you if you put your money away, this is what you're going to get, and and that was their idea of financial literacy, and it was it was baffling to them that why guys were having problems, and and there's some of them are structural. Uh, you you when you're an NFL player, you only get 17 paychecks, so you mm-hmm. only get paid during the season. So the other time you're not getting paid, and that is that's tough for a kid that come from come from college where you get a scholarship check once a month, or you might not have a background of having the budget. And I and I even use this example. I was in plenty of finances uh, classes in college. They never taught how to how taught you how to budget. They never taught you <laughs> what a deductible and insurance was. They never told you who FICA was and why he kept taking all that money out of your paycheck. Like they never, <laughs> they, no one, there's no classes for that. And so when I was thinking of financial literacy, I was thinking about the nuts and bolts of, okay, go back to your rookie year and what do you wish, what do you know now that you wish you would have known, right? How, what, is, what are those things that, that you wish, gosh, I wish I just would have known that. And that's where I started building out the program. I started saying, okay, you know, understand the budgeting process, but understand that burn rate is really more important sometimes in saving because the burn rate is your savings and, and things and, and how that inverse relationship works and and that how insurance and and we get down into a lot of, you know, get down into taxes and how to read your paycheck and what's it mean and just those things before we ever get into this idea of yield curves and investing and compounding interest because, again, you, you know, again, I take a step back and say, what's it matter if I teach somebody the thought of compounding interest if they don't see the big picture, if they don't go back and saying, okay, guys, this is what we're really trying to do. And, and, and that, that message is never going to get through. So a lot of it was about surrounding yourself with the right people. And I kind of called them the startup cost of life. You're going to incur these startup costs because you really come from college and now all of a sudden you're plunked in this amount of money. And even a, a rookie salary in the NFL is, is 
uh, close to half a million dollars. And so you're going to be making a lot of money day one, even if you don't have a signing bonus. What do you do with that? How do you budget that? How do you make it last? And how do you stay solvent? And so I started, I looked at that and I built the program out through that. But then, you know, I can't do it by myself because right. the union doesn't have enough touches to do it. So I, I built some relationships with some people on the league and I, I went to them and I said, listen, there are some, this is important. This is how I think we can make it better. What do you guys think? And well, we've, we've heard a lot of background on what do you suggest. And so we started with a, we started, I convinced them to do a pilot program. It took two years, but I stayed after them. Um, you know, we did a pilot program with two teams uh, two years ago. This year we did 10 teams, and then hopefully next year we're going to roll it out to everybody. But it didn't stop your rookie year. It went into your second year and your third year. And we built on those concepts, and we taught, and we thought about, you know, okay, and, and we took feedback from the players about what's going on in your life. What do you want to know about? And it's a, what's, what I found amazing is, is that the class ends up teaching itself. Right. You, you put these building blocks in there and then the guys tell you what the next topic's going to be because that's what's important to them. And, and you can see it and you get professionals that don't want anything from them. And I, that was one of something else that there's for our guys, everybody in their life, they're so wary of so many people because everybody that approaches them wants something mm -hmm. from them. We went out and got a group called Financial Finesse who that's their, they're a bunch of CFPs that that's what they, they teach financial literacy in a corporate setting. They they don't have the they don't have the the platform to to want anything from them even if they could, and so that was the thing I think that's been disarming and, and I think that's been good and, and we've gotten so many reviews because of it positive reviews is because they go in there and these guys want help but they know that these guys aren't going to try to sell them on something later, uh, but I again I so not to get too far off track but so when I go to the league and and we talk about it, we go back and forth and. We, we ended up packaging it together. I didn't get everything I wanted. I wanted to start spreading out those 17 payments and, um, you know, for reasons that I, 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 won't, I won't sound too harsh, so I'm not going to get into that. They didn't want to do that just yet. But they, we were able to get a lot of that in, and we were able to, to start this program up. I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of, I think, hopefully what it can do and what it can help, and at least it's a start for some of these guys, and, and hopefully, hopefully it helps. Very good. Eric, we're, we're short on time, but just to say out loud, am I right in thinking that the collective bargaining agreement is the big, big ticket item on the horizon? Yeah, that's, that's uh, you know, most of my time and, and most of, uh, you know, most of this meeting, quite frankly, coming up will be about talking about the issues and, and the CBA is so comprehensive that, you know, it's, it's not just about money. Again, it really covers those topics that I said, the hours, wages, working conditions, health and safety. It's a massive document that is, uh, it's, a, it's, it's painstaking negotiations that go on. I was slightly involved in it as a younger player um, nine years ago or eight years ago when it first came out. We have two seasons left, and, and uh, at some point we'll start in on it. But, uh, but again, these, these players have to make decisions, and, and we have to be their voice, and we have to look out for them and, and, and do what's right for them. Eric, a quick question here with only a minute or two to go, as Ann indicated. We would be remiss if we didn't take a little bit of time here at the end to talk about uh, protest on the field. And I know you've been in the thick of things. The Players Association's had a lot, of, <laughs> a lot to say on Colin Kaepernick and everybody else who has opted at the start of some games to uh, demonstrate in some way uh, their concerns about uh, police behavior. Pick up on that and give us your current thinking uh, about that form of player protest. 
Um, I think there's something, uh, you know, unfortunately it's been a, it's a hot topic. Uh, unfortunately, if there's been some, I think it's been mischaracterized on purpose, exactly mm-hmm. what it is, right? There's, there's people that I think have purposely mischaracterized exactly what it is. I, I look at it and I say, I don't know if there's anything more American than, um, than, uh, than protest and, and protest in a peaceful way. And I think that's what he's doing. And he started a conversation. I think it's a conversation that people and, and Americans picked up on. And, and what I'm most proud of is, is that, that conversation that we have in that locker room about it. And it's, it's diverse guys from all over the country. And, and some of them don't believe in, in what's going on, don't, don't think it should be happening. But we respect each other so much that we do it in, in such a, a, a way that, that we can agree to disagree. And I, and I think it's a better conversation what's happening in the locker room than sometimes what's happening in our political discourse. But uh, I know, I, I, I believe me, I've been out on those ledges. I've, I've been in front of a microphone and said things um, that, that – that, that separated me from her because I believed in, in something that I was saying. And, and I have a lot of respect for not just Colin, but for anybody that's willing to go out there and, and put themselves on the line and, and put their belief structure on the line and stand out from everybody else and, and, and take the bullets that are going to come their way, proverbial speaking, obviously, that are going to come their way uh, because I, I know how tough it is. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm proud that he was an NFL player. I'm, I'm proud, of, proud of him now. I'm proud of the rest of the guys that that do all the work in the communities that they do that are willing to stand up and say, that's not right, but I'm going to help fix it. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. Mm-hmm. And just uh, before you go, can you tell listeners where they can find out more about the NFL Players Association? Yeah, you can always go to NFLPA.com. Uh, plenty of things uh, there uh, to look at, uh, some some not for uh, regular fan consumption, but, but plenty are. We have uh, Twitter, NFLPA, uh, at, at NFLPA. I'm at Eric Winston. Um, I'm always pontificating on something going on <laughs> usually. So, um, But, yeah, that's you can find out everything. And then, obviously, um, you know, every every Sunday in the fall we'll be out there. So. Well, very good. Eric, we wish you the very best success. Eric, great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) Thank you. All right, Mike, we have about a minute for our usual after-action review. My my quick uh, after-action review for my part, and then over to you. Yes. Uh, Eric, to me, is just uh, almost a perfect exemplar of somebody who sees a situation where you can make a difference, and he wasn't shy about jumping into it. And, Ann, you and I and Jeff, we often in a classroom and other settings will uh, voice the need to get in, make a difference, take charge, even if you're not fully or formally in charge of something. And um, Eric is maybe uh, exhibit A. Yeah, really. And I have to add, Mike, Eric, if my stats are right here, is 6'7", 302 pounds. Someone who could probably simply impose his way (laughs) simply by sheer presence. He talked about, you know, taking over the Players Association, leading the Players Association, and then having that that realization that executive-style leadership was not going to work here, but rather uh, legislative style. In other words, getting consensus among the players and then building relationships with the owners in order Great to get point. things done. He's got an ear to the ground, and he's got a hand across the table. Exactly. So for someone uh, who could be so forceful, I think it's just so impressive to realize that. 
I'm Ann Greenhall, and I'm with Mike Useem, and together we host Leadership in Action. So come back next week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. Good night. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 